Native Mounted Police in Queensland. Andrew Murray's Diary, unpublished, 1860. Saturday, December 31, 1859. I started with my outfit and three horses, all young, sound and quiet. My intention was to go through to Urala that night which would be a distance of 27 miles. First starts from home are seldom early. Before I had already, midday was passed and after bidding all goodbye, it was well into afternoon. Leading two spare horses, unused to leading, prevented me going fast with the result that I had to stay at Rambanda for the night, a distance of about 12 miles. I had known Mrs. Stitt since I was six years old and she was very kind and hospitable, nevertheless I would have been glad if time had permitted and my horses had led better, to have reached my destination. A Mrs. Davis, sister of Mrs. James Starr of Zion House, Armadale, was staying here and she, having come from the north of Ireland, had a wish to see the old year out and the new year in, with a bright fire, which however pleasant in the depth of winter in Ireland, was not a necessity on a warm night in Australia. So, leaving the company to enjoy Hogmanay, I went to bed, but not to sleep. What with the rattling of dishes and the telling of stories of the time kept up in Ireland, little peace was possible until past the hour of twelve. If I had known to what extent our ideas differed, I would have travelled until twelve o'clock to reach my destination at Urella. Sunday the 1st of January 1860. Started and went on quietly, reaching Urella early, a distance of fifteen miles. Accepted the kind hospitality of Mrs. George Mackay at whose hotel I stayed when in Urella, until all were ready for a start. Mrs. Mackay was a kind and motherly lady and as I had known them all for years and Johnny, Hugh and Vinnie and their sons being all here, I was quite at home. Johnny had been working on the diggings for some time, where a great deal of gold had been found since its discovery in 1852 and was still being obtained. Monday the 2nd of January 1860. On calling on Mr. John Macrossan to ascertain when he thought he would be able to start, he said that unfortunately he would be detained through some case to be heard at the courthouse in Armadale. Had I known sooner, I need not have come so soon. Mr. Mackay proposed that we ride over to Mehi Creek and see the people there. I had been at the station when a small boy about twenty-one years ago and had all the surroundings indelibly impressed on my mind. A Mr. Roderick McLennan, shipmate of my father, was managing there for the owner, a Mr. Jenkins, I think. The custom of the times when old acquaintances met, was to have a glass of rum or any substitute procurable. On this occasion it was hot beer. I remember the frothy head and the inviting look it had. When indulging in liquor, real or only a substitute, people get kind and generous. I must have a nip too. What a disappointment it was, the first beer I had seen and instead of being as I expected, a nice sweet drink, it was bitter as if brewed from bitter wood. Drink that, no, no, it was twenty-five years after that dose that I took kindly to beer. I was only learning to walk in those days and I feel I did not get groggy on that beer. Father carried me most of the way home from Salisbury and I heard my mother say I sleep well that night. 
the Mihi beer and a few other things about the place are still on my mind. So on a second visit we were most kindly entertained by Mrs. John Gordon and her two fine daughters, Mrs. Jessie and Kate. Mrs. Jessie and Kate who did all they could to entertain us with all the anecdotes and jokes they could think of. I well remembered the old house still in a good state of repair, nicely fixed up with paper pictures and all the little fancy ornaments, a great improvement on the old bachelor's bare slab walls of 1840, and what was better, a nice cup of tea and a tasty meal instead of that hot beer and milk. Many new outhouses had been put up since my first visit and the fine, long native pampas grass that grew along the course of the creek with its downy feather-like white tops was all gone. Not a trace of it now, the cattle and horses had cropped it all down, it was gone, little by little, unnoticed by those living there all along those years since I first saw it. Not so with me, although only there a few hours and away for twenty-one years, seemed as though I had only been away a few days. The land and water appearance was all comparatively thick and I think if killed, much undergrowth will show up rock formation slate. In the morning a proposal was made to go out to the Mihi Creek Falls. The horses were brought in and noticing that Miss Cates was not a choice riding hack for a lady, I exchanged with her, giving one that was a little better, a stock rather than a side saddle hack and I rode her pony. The distance to the falls was about six miles and did not take long to get over. The creek is small but in time of flood, would be a considerable stream. I do not know the height of the falls, but over two hundred feet I would think. We threw some stones over and saw white cockatoos flying among the trees growing on the narrow banks of the creek below. After having a look at the gully from different angles we went back to the slate rock formation of the falls. Having a cup of tea and an early lunch, we then started back to Urala. From there I went down to Cameron's sheep station where my old mate, Donald Cameron, was staying, with his wife Kate. Spent one night here among the kind old acquaintances and back to Urala. Thinking I might be better of a fourth horse, as all except Macrossan had only two each, I returned to Hanning and bargained with my uncle, John Blair, for a black horse he called Rainbow. He thought he was fast and thought a great deal of him. He was by Lock Star, a big stallion we had and he had a strain of Arab in him, quiet-tempered and a useful animal. Unfortunately, while cantering over snow, he slipped and broke his thigh and had to be shot. Returning to Urala, the time drew near for a start. I now had four fairly good horses. Cameron, Muldoon and I, thought it would be well before starting, to call a meeting to arrange in a rough way, to define our respective duties on the coming journey. Where there are eight to cook for during many months' journey, a good deal of friction can be avoided by a mutual understanding as to our respective duties. Most of us, especially Cameron, Muldoon and myself, knew roughly how to prepare a meal, an almost inherent accomplishment of those who follow diggings, stock droving, carrying etc. When the arrangement of cooking week about was proposed, Mr. Macrossan objected to doing his week's cooking. The matter could have been got over easily. He was the organizer and leader of the expedition and had a right to all due consideration.
he was willing to assist, but not to be bound, was one of the best types of the human race. Kind, just and strict, but too liberal, all admired him and wished him success. The result of the meeting was barren. Nothing was fixed definitely, further than each one was to provide an equal share in purchase of necessary rations, ammunition and general outfit. We were all to share in any division of any country we might find and each member to dispose of his interest as he chose. When all got together we numbered seven white men and a black boy named Duke, who was a son of King Brandy and Queen Mary Anne's, born at Salisbury, the 7th of October, 1839. Mr. John Macrossan, who organized the party and was its chief supporter, was a native of the north of Ireland. With his father, mother, sisters and brothers, he arrived in this country in the early 1840s. The whole family was strictly honest in all their dealings. When he started out on this trip he had a fine up-to-date store and was doing good business. He found and maintained the black boy, Duke, in horses and saddles and took with him fourteen horses. Mr. John Mackay, a native of Inverness, Scotland, came to this country in the 1850s. He wrote a good hand, kept a journal and bought much of our provisions, with money contributed from time to time as requested by the party. He had two horses, one for saddle and one for packing. He had, he said, been educated for a seafaring life and before starting, had been like thousands of other young men, at the Rocky River diggings at Maitland Point, near Urella, NSW. Mr. Donald Cameron, a native of Inverness Shire, Scotland, came to this country in the early 1850s and was a neighbor of ours whilst managing for Mr. R. Pringle's station at Retreat. I knew him well there and also as a digger on the Rocky River at Maitland Point. A fine, able man, about six feet high, active and strong. He had two horses. Hamilton Robertson was a native of the Hunter River. He and his people were highly respected by all who knew them. He had two horses, a pack and a saddle horse. John Muldoon, a native of the north of Ireland, followed mining pursuits and was a mate of Cameron on the Rocky River diggings, had two horses. Jovanna Barbara, John Barbara, was an Italian by birth, by trade a carpenter, quiet and unassuming. He seemed out of his element a little. He had a pack and saddle horse. Myself. Andrew Murray, a native of Wabra, on the Maclay River, NSW was carried on to New England when very young, had followed pastoral and station work all my life and had four horses. The Start. Monday, January 16, 1860. Started from Urala and had some trouble with the horses. Mackay, Robertson and Duke stayed behind at Saumarez Ponds. Unfortunately, I lost the barrels of my gun. Messrs. John Macrossan, Cameron, Muldoon, Barbara and I went on. Mr. Macrossan had some law business to attend to. Tuesday, January 17, 1860. I bought a new gun, double barrel, in Armadale for an 3.10.0. After many little delays we left in the afternoon, about 2.30. Past Tilbuster about four miles further and camped on a 
Creek, Night Cold, Timber Box and Stringy Bark. Wednesday, January 18, 1860. Started at 8 o'clock, crossed over to the Pinch. Had dinner on a small plain near Gyra. Had a tin of sardines and oiled my boots. Country thickly grassed, basaltic rock formation. Went on to Falconer, bought a cheese from a Mrs. Cameron. She, her husband and family were shipmates of Donald Cameron. Went on and camped near Ben Lomond Head Station. Timber, peppermint, patches of red soil. Thursday, January 19, 1860. Started early, wishing to see the Glen Innes races. On topping Ben Lomond, we saw the tents in the distance on the racecourse on Beardy Plains. The distance deceiving. After traveling until about four o'clock and making several further attempts to cross the Beardy, being stopped each time by the boggy nature of the country, we got along to where the road crossed as the people were leaving the course, so went past Glen Innes about eleven halves miles and camped about a mile from the town. I managed to shoot a plains turkey, took it onto the camp. After tea the whole party except myself and Duke went back to the town. The night was very dark. I took the inside out of the turkey, carried it to a small muddy waterhole, plastered it over with mud and put it in a big fire to cook, gathering up all the wood I could get to try to steam it. After a length of time I took it out, the mud and the feathers came off in flakes, but it was not cooked so had to cut it up and put on to stew in a billy can. Later on the party returned in small detachments. They had been amongst a rowdy lot settling up at the races. A constable said Muldoon had struck him and they were apprehended and had to be bailed out and were to appear at court next day. Friday, January 20, 1860. My travelling companions returned to town. Mr. J. A. McGuinness J. P. heard the case at one of the hotels. All were let off, as the constable, if struck, had made a mistake and had arrested the wrong man. Started in the afternoon along the Tenterfield Road and camped at Ogs Creek Country Poor and Granite Formation. Much stringy bark, black butt, little grass to be seen and of poor quality. Saturday, January, 21, 1860. Started at 7 o'clock and passed Dundee and thence over a somewhat better class of country. Timber, peppermint. After a few miles the country much improved. Timber changes to yellow jacket. Crossed deep water on the edge of the plain and shot a plains turkey. There was little water in the creek. Crossed the creek near the head station and after going about a mile, crossed for the third time over deep water. The run of the water was very little. Going on some distance we turned off the road to the left and in the bend of the creek got a fine dry camp for Sunday. Had gun practice at a tree with fairly satisfactory results. I had been interested to have a swim in a large waterhole but changed my mind. We did not catch any. Fish. Sunday, January 22, 1860. Camped all day. Muldoon gave us some useful religious tracts. Also, I had a Bible, one left at retreat station years ago and given to me by my grandmother. The name of Archibald Phelan was written in it. I suppose the name of the young man who owned it and left it through forgetfulness would regret his loss. The country here is all of granite formation, 
large flags and boulders of that rock cover the mountains and ridges for many miles around. Monday, January 23, 1860. Had a good start this morning, passed over the Bolivia mountain, on the north side steep and uneven. Past Bolivia head station on our left and on the Mole River country, the greater part of the way was poor to very poor. Passed along under the bluff, a high, almost perpendicular peak, on the roadside. The Mole River has deeply eroded country between granite, sandy ridges, white gums grow along its course, the bed is sandy. Crossed a low dividing ridge and ran down what appeared to be one of the main heads of Tenterfield. Creek, camped a few miles south of the town. All is granite formation, some high hills to the west and east of our camp. The granite seems finer in the grain here and some large flags of it in places. Tuesday, January 24, 1860. Started somewhat later and reached the township early. Some of the horses were to be shod. I stayed in the camp in a bend of the creek, close to the town. Made a fire in a stump as firewood was scarce. One of the party brought me a piece of mutton to boil. It was very tainted. I had read in the Armadale Express that charcoal would take the taint away from meat. If a quantity was added to the water in which the meat was boiled, I tried it and found it a failure so did not have a very palatable meal. My mates showed signs of having sampled fire water, especially. Some of the Tenterfield blacks, Duke said, were after him to kill him, so in starting in the afternoon from town, he armed himself with a cutlass, with which we were provided. Swords had been ordered but were unprocurable. The cutlasses had no sheaths and were very dangerous weapons to carry. Duke rode a chestnut colt of Mr. Macrossens, which started bucking furiously when just clear of town. Duke flourished the cutlass and stuck to the saddle well, saying that Blackfellow could come now, he would teach them not to follow after him. Went on a few miles down the Tenterfield Creek and camped, being a little northwest of town. Wednesday, January 25, 1860. Started early, passed over Ballandine Gap. Poor granite country, not swampy at all. Had dinner on a creek and on over white sandy ridges. After passing a big, high stockyard, we camped within a few miles of Bartley Rose Inn, Quartpot Creek. Thursday, January 26, 1860. All agreed to have breakfast at the inn for a change, so started early. After three or four miles travel, came to the hotel, a long barn-like building, split slab walls and a stringy bark roof. We ordered breakfast. Bartley Rose seemed a little afraid of us, thinking from the numerous arms were carried that we might be related in some way to bushrangers or horse stealers. After waiting a while, breakfast was ready and we tried to have value for our money. Mackay had a bottle of pickles when most else on the table had disappeared and was deliberately eating away at him, so we nicknamed him Pickles. He tried the salad oil in the cruet, but it did not seem palatable. A little of it was taken to oil our guns. The meals cost us two, a piece and all liquors were one, a glass, including cordials. After breakfast we journeyed on, passing Maryland Head Station. 
The country near it is of good sound formation. Much wattle growing on it. After passing it, sandy country was again met with and traveled over for about eight miles when we camped at a sandy gully. Friday, January 27, 1860. Had a good start to the mail station, into camp early. Had dinner and long gun practice at a tree that has a good deal of lead in as a result. On the west a high range runs in a northerly and southerly direction, faced on the side next to us with a dark green scrub, very dense. At the foot of the scrub, a swamp of a few acres in extent is visible, as if a spring came out of the scrubby hill. On the west side of this range is the Rosenthwell head station. The ridges and gullies were very steep. I went down some distance, exploring, and had a struggle to get through the long grass. A small animal started running along in the grass, making a peculiar spitting noise and of a strange, stifling odor. I thought it an uncanny place, climbed the ridge and home to camp. Another stage will bring us near the town of Warwick, still in granite country. Saturday, January 28, 1860. Got away early and all went well. Cameron and I traveled together as a rule, as mates conversing and exchanging ideas on all the various incidents of the past and present. A strange trait in human existence is that some associates either from longer acquaintance or social bearing or friendship are greater favorites than others. Donald and I had shared in the mountain chase after wild stock, as well as working together in other ways. We are not first in the party where one, nips are at hand, but up to our post where work was wanted, whether cooking a meal, pitching a tent or bringing the horses into camp. Of the latter we had little to do, as Duke was always attentive to his work. This was a hot, dusty day, wind. From the NW in which course the road ran. The horses raised clouds of dust which were carried by the wind in the faces of those behind. The country from three miles north of early camp had improved, some beautiful, sound forest land of a reddish color. Arrived at Warwick about 3 p.m., crossed the Conadmine River and camped at Cave Creek. Sunday, January 29, 1860. Remained in camp. The temperature is very warm. Monday, January 30, 1860. As some horses had to be shod, we remained in camp. Mackay and I went fishing, but did not catch any fish. Tuesday, January 31, 1860. Started early and camped near Dalrymple, now Alora Creek. Saw a great number of turkeys but not near enough to shoot any. We shot some pigeons. Wednesday, February 1, 1860. Had a good start, traveling over plains and intervening belts of openly timbered ridges, the timber being of a kind of yellow jacket. Gnarled growth and good firewood. We camped on a well-watered creek, called Clifton Creek, country, open plains here and die, hash d5, cult to get wood to cook with. I had to bake some flour into johnny cakes and the remainder into doughboys with sugar. Two emus came into sight on the downs, which are very extensive here. I caught Rainbow, the fastest horse I had and armed with a revolver, went in pursuit, hoping to get some oil for our harness and guns. 
Directly I went toward them, they were off at a fast pace and as the ground was not good for galloping, I could not get near enough to shoot. Thursday February 2nd. Went on over country much the same, all black soil. Passed a number of carriers driving bullock teams. Passed a fine piece of extra well-grassed country at Emu Creek and reached Eaton Vale early. Camped on the north side of the station. Grass not so good here, eaten off by sheep, which, compared to New England sheep, seemed nearly as big again. Mackay shot a rosella parrot with a bullet. The plumage of these birds is a dullish green, the bright colors, red, yellow and blue of the New England rosella wanting on those of the Darling Downs. Friday, February 3, 1860. Left camp early. Mackay shot a fine turkey. We reached Drayton early. Some alterations and repairs to Mr. Macrossan's harness necessitated his staying some time. Drayton is situated on a dry, stony ridge, no sign of water near it. The water is carted from a spring some distance away. Donald Cameron and I went on to Goury Creek. The day was very hot and except a few white cedar bushes, there was no shade. The water in the creek was nearly all dried up. Had some diner packed up and passed the Guri head station and near dark, camped at a boggy spring. There was a well but the Glen Gallon water was useless of dead possums and native cats in it. We managed to get enough water for the camp by digging it out of the cattle tracks. The remainder of our party came to camp late. Some of them had been drinking success to the journey. We went on towards John Darion Station, where at Mirage Creek, an illusion like a lake, ripples in the wind on the edge of the lake. When we reached the creek on the edge of the timber, the waterholes were half dried up and hundreds of mussels or shells were stinking in the muddy bank. Passed John Darion Head Station and went on to a long waterhole and camped. There was no bread and the little hitch that should have been fixed up at Urala cropped up. Mr. Macrossan always attended to boiling the water and making the tea, but some of the other members of the party never did any of the cooking. They would hobble their horses, put their harness together and wait for the two or three willing hands to do the rest. On this occasion, when the bread bag was opened there was no bread. The result was that de hash d2 night. Arrangements were agreed to. Mr. Mackay was very attentive to writing up his journal and some of the others did nothing. I also kept a journal. Needless to state, no further annoyance was experienced and all were willing to take their week to cook. Sunday, February 5, 1860. Camped as usual on the Sabbath. The day was one of the hottest we had experienced. Nice showers during the night. Monday, February 6, 1860. The distance to Dolby was about 15 miles. The road lay through a comparatively level, open-timbered, box forest. No sign of a creek. We pushed on and reached the township of Mile Creek about 3 o'clock. Our horses were not all in the best of condition, especially Barbara's poor pack horse. As some expected letters from home, we agreed to go up the creek a mile and a half and camp for a time. We went into town many times, when the weather was fine. We had some heavy showers and the creek ran a good stream, and small fish of silvery white appeared, 
six to eight inches long, camped up in the stream and where there were low falls, jumped over them. They resembled bream. We also went shooting scrub wallabies in a bellar and brigolo scrub. I shot one which had one or two scrub ticks on it, so we would not use it. Camped here till the 17th. Friday, February 17, 1860. Started on early and reached Jimbor Creek about noon. Camped near the creek, the only place where there was any timber. Fixed up our tent and got dinner and were enjoying it in front of the tent. There was a thunder cloud overhead. Suddenly a small streak of chain lightning struck a tree about 40 yards from us, cutting a small limb off, and rending the bark to the ground. All our bowie knives were thrown from us and we got away from the trees. I saw the lightning strike the ground on the open plain and the dust rose as if a large gun had been fired upwards. The cloud soon floated away. A light shower had fallen that made the ground sticky. Time passed on, the night was dark. We had a fire burning, when a young man rode up to our camp and said, Good night. He seemed to have had a glass or two, he rode a grey horse. Leaving the camp, he went in the direction of our horse bells and we soon heard them galloping. Muldoon's horse, Shaughnessy, had a bullfrog bell on and was heard very plainly. Muldoon, Mackay and I went on foot as fast as we could run in the dark, Muldoon keeping ahead a few yards. When we reached the horses the fellow was taking the bell and hobbles off Shaughnessy. Muldoon, who was a strong young man struck him, knocking him down. I got hold of him, he objected so got a few hard hits. Mackay came up, the man's horse had got away and we marched the would-be horse stealer back to our camp. Cameron and Muldoon found his horse and put it in the jamba paddock. We kept guard over our prisoner all night, intending to take him to Dolby. The delay to have him tried changed that plan. He said that his name was Baxter and his father owned a pound near Brisbane and his intention was to take the horses to the Bunya Bunya Mountains, but if we would let him go, he would not trouble us again. After considering the matter, we let him go and had no further trouble from him, or anyone else, the whole trip. Saturday, February 18, 1860. After getting ready we went on our way, passing the Jimbor head station, where Leichhardt started from on October 1, 1844 for his overland trip to Port Essington. Got out to Karanga Creek where there was fine water and many fine ducks. In fixing up our guns to try get a few of them, Muldoon accidentally let the hammer of his gun slip. The gun went off and although we were all standing around him, providently, no one was injured. The discharge frightened the game away. A very marked change for the worse takes place in the character of the country after passing Karanga Creek, situated about six miles from Jimbor. Instead of black soil downs, we had a lighter colored soil, which, during periods of heavy rain, would be boggy in places. The downs gnarled box disappeared, red gum along this creek of fair growth, is well represented. The poplar box is to be found on the forest land, with iron bark scrub. Patches occur, chi, hash d3, y of brigolo, 
grass wiry and in places, seedy. Surface water in drought periods is scarce. The site of a round well is to be seen near where some buildings of an early period exist. The timbering of this well had been fixed in by timber, circular, similar to the fellies of a cart wheel. The work had been well done, the upper part being in good repair still, although abandoned for, perhaps, 12 or 14 years. Camped on Jingi Creek, known also as Charlie's Creek, it empties into the Condamine. Sunday, February 19, 1860. Camped here in the afternoon. Duke discovered what he thought were bees going into a small pipe, near the top of a dead tree. He went up, thinking to get some honey. I may state that there were no native bees in New England and Duke had heard of them but had not seen them and the English bee did not reach that district as at this year. The New England. Blacks used to go over their boundaries into the Namoy and Tamworth districts after native honey and pipe clay. Where the beautiful white pipe clay was found in Halls Creek is still a mystery. The tree, although high, was not big and Duke soon felled it with the tomahawk. Muldoon, whilst examining the supposed bees, had ample proof of their stinging ability. One flew it and stung him near the eye, I have not forgotten his exclamation. They were a small variety of hornet with a dark, honey-like substance in their nest in a kind of comb. Sue, hash d5, ce to say, one small taste of it would last one for a lifetime. I tasted it and Sue, Hash D7, erred very much from its effects during the night. My trusty mate Cameron attended me, till I began to get better. A teaspoon of the substance would, I think, prove fatal. It had a sweetish honey-like taste. Monday February, 20, 1860. Started early taking the Gainder Road. Cameron and I had strong views on the liquor question and although but little spirits were indulged in, every shout, as it was called, cost. 8. Neither of us liked it and objected, as it were, to be being victimized. We bought a bottle of raspberry syrup at the store of the station and going ahead, when we came to water, had a drink. We never pulled up at hotels on the road afterwards, except on one occasion. The country going towards the road to the Boyne River, was of a sandy nature, second and third grade grazing land quality. Camped at a creek, squatter pigeons were fairly numerous and there were some ducks. I shot a few pigeons and others got some ducks. We came a long stage today, about 25 miles. Tuesday, February 21, 1860. Got a fair start and traveled over iron bark ridges, composed of granite sand and some quartz. The ridges, although high, were not rough. The gullies were deep. On reaching the Boyne River we found a large channel sanded from bank to bank and there was a little surface water under it. Past the station on the east side of the river, called the Bassendeervan and owned by Sanderman and Gilbraith. After traveling some distance we camped on a sandy ridge, characteristic of the whole country we have seen for over 30 miles, a coarse, sandy formation. We had our best water dog poisoned at this camp, so have only Mr. Macrossan's old Bluey, a cattle dog, left. I walked a long distance, 
trying to discover what I thought might be scrub turkeys, but found the loud cooing noise was the note of the doves, which are numerous hereabouts. Wednesday, February 22, 1860. Started early, crossed over the River Boyne. Passed the head station, Bundaberg, I think is the name of it. The owner's name is Lawson. They were packing carbines to send out to some new country. Character of the country, second class. Camped on a small creek, the name of the creek is unknown to us. Thursday, February 23, 1860. The country being poor, we pushed on over medium country, recrossed the Boyne and camped at Stathdy's station. Very poor feed. Watered the horses, a great many blacks. Here, they camped in groups at small fires and sat in rows like soldiers. Friday, February 24, 1860. The character of the country is still poor, in places, useless. There is a kind of cemented rock with white box and iron bark and scrubby heath. Had some rain during the night, hope to reach Gainder tomorrow. Saturday, February 25, 1860. Had a good start, Cameron and I went on ahead, passing over some hard, cement-like rocky ridges with a prickly heath low scrub for about 17 miles. Came out on a fine black soil plain. Saw a house on the roadside. We were a mile ahead of the party and on calling at the house, found they sold milk. What a treat. We drank about a quart each. What a luxury to us, coming as we had from where milk was plentiful. The party in sight so we went on to Gainder and pulled up at Walker's Hotel, to await the coming of our mates. A man was standing at the taproom door, whom I seemed to have seen before. He was much altered, but something about him I must know. I asked him if his name was Bell. He replied that it was and added, You are Andrew Murray. Saw him last at Stony Batter about seven years ago. He inquired our errand and on being told insisted on me staying with him. So the others of our party went on over the Burnett River, camping on the West Bank. I stayed to the hotel that night. We occupied the same room in separate beds, but had little sleep all night talking about the old New England folk and what had transpired since he left. I spent a pleasant night as his guest. Sunday, February 26, 1860. John Bell would not hear of me going over to the camp. I would have preferred it as I was never a good publican's customer, but pressing invitations from an old companion of bygone days and arrangements with the party to hobble and look after my horses prevailed and stayed with him over Sunday, and fared well as the day was showery. Monday, February 27, 1860. Mr. Bell told me his business there was buying cattle. He had, however, the evening before we arrived bought some 300 or 350 head from the landlord, Mr. Walker. After a hard deal which ended in his favor on the strength of his playing the violin to Mr. Walker's satisfaction and singing a few songs, aided by a member of the force, the chorus of whose song was, We'll laugh and sing, God save the king, Old Ireland and the army etc. Mr. Bell said buying the cattle was a hard bargain, getting a reliable man to drove them, still harder, for he could not get one worth a button. Would I help him? I replied that I would, 
if my companions agreed to do my work, pack up my kit and look after my horses. This they readily agreed to do, so I am now to be, for a time at least, a cattle drover. I got in as a disinterested party in the stock. Mr. Walker did not know that I was the leading bull rider in the Moonbee Ranges and that I had a likely for the welfare of my old Longford friend. Tuesday, February 28, 1860. Matters being arranged satisfactorily I started out in the northeasterly direction where the cattle were being herded. There were about 500 head in the lot. There being no yard to count out, it was mutually agreed between Mr. Walker and Mr. Bell that as the stockman and myself were disinterested we were to cut the mob and whichever was the bigger lot was to be Mr. Bell's. The cattle were a mixed lot from Yandillo Darling Downs. After rounding them up and mixing them as fairly as we could, we cut. When heavy and light cattle re-ringing around, the heavy cattle keep together. I had the lead and the cut was made, which was considered satisfactory to both parties. All the bullocks were in Bell's lot. They were then counted and a man came with me to help me drove them whilst Mr. Bell and Mr. Walker returned to Gainder to settle up for them. Bell then returned and together, we drove them down to Mr. Reed's station, Idaway, where we had a yard to put them in. At the house a hearty squatter's welcome, good fare and good sleep awaited. Wednesday, February 29, 1860. Had breakfast and a good start and travelled level with the Burnett on the west bank to a creek, emptying into the Burnett River. As we had no yard tonight, we camped the cattle between the creek and the river, near the junction. It seemed to be an outstation. A Mr. Bates lived there, the name of the place being Yander. Thursday, March 1, 1860. Started early and went on over some well-grassed country where we had to keep night watch again. Friday, March 2, 1860. Went on and after a hard day's drive we reached Messrs. Leviston and Lamett's station, Twingering. In the distance we saw large yards and hoped to get the cattle in. On Mr. Bell's asking, however, the use of the yards for cattle was refused. They were sheep yards and the cattle would tread them up. So we had a third night, watching. We camped on the east side of the creek which served as a break and a fence came into it, which, with a dense vine scrub, served a fairly good camp. We had little trouble, but felt the want of sleep. One of the station bulls was a little troublesome during the night. Saturday, March 3, 1860. Started as early as possible. The ridges were very stony, with sharp slate and rock. A windstorm had caused the fall, by the roots, of many spotted gums. The cattle were footsore and travelled very slowly. We had only one apology for a stockwhip which we exchanged from time to time and by hard work got about three miles by midday. Had a razor back to rise so put the cattle on into it to fee up, whilst we had a little to eat. While at dinner one of the station owners came along. He thought we could not make the next station so had better camp at a creek, some distance ahead. The ground on the top off the ridge was softer going and by hard work we reached Waller by sundown. Mr. Bell got leave to put them in the yard. I think he gave in a short count. 
The yard was not big enough, but we were inside a paddock so if a few were left out, no matter. However we got them packed in, the rails up, something to eat and lay down on the couch on the lower side of the yard, a nice soft bed and dry. We soon sleep. It was cloudy then and had been all day. We sleep soundly, very soundly. I awakened next morning. We were in a watercourse coming through the yard, more than a little damp. I wakened up Bell. We gathered up our traps and went into a hut where we fixed up a stretcher and the water dripped off us till morning. Sunday, March 4, 1860. At daylight we got away. A deep banked creek came into the river where we had to cross at the bend of it. On the river sand, the river had not risen so we got over all right. I drove all day with a hat and shirt on, my pants and boots on the saddle and the horse with the cattle swam a scrubby creek and reached Jinjin in good time. Got a yard for the cattle and a dry suit from Mr. Eugene Brown, who, with Mrs. Brown at the British Lion, were very kind to us. My exploring mates were camped on the opposite side of the Jinjin Creek. Monday, March 5, 1860. Jinjin or Jinjin Creek was a banker. Showers had prevented all chance of drying wet clothes. Mr. Bell had got an aboriginal to herd the cattle. Relieved of that duty, I went down, stripped, after calling my mates, who came down on the opposite bank. I swam over. The floating driftwood was the greatest danger to a swimmer. Over all right, got some dry clothes, found the party were on short allowance, ration nearly all used. Tied my clothes in a bundle, put them on my head and holding them by a string in my teeth, swam back again. Got some tucker and a blackfellow to swim over with it on his head. Tuesday March 6, 1860 the blackfellow gave satisfaction as a herdsman, so we were at leisure. My mates got a white cedar log and made a dug out of it. It was light and soft to work, so was soon scooped out like a pig trough and the launching ceremony was the next performance. Being scooped out only enough for one to squeeze his knees in and no keel to steady it, no profit was required to tell the result of trying to cross a flooded creek in it. As few of the party were swimmers, they had the forethought to try it in shallow water whilst one wedged into it and won the inquiries, are you all right? Being affirmed, it was let go. No sooner done when the boat was on top and the passenger was where the keel should have been. After many getting ducked in this way recourse was had under directions of the principal shipbuilder, Giovanna Barbara, to lash a length of the unused part of the log one each side of the canoe. It was then found that turning over tricks were partly cured. Nevertheless, I think no prudent life insurance coy would have taken the life risk at par of a magpie trying to cross that flooded creek in such a makeshift boat. Still, wonderful to relate, it served the end and went from bank to bank without a capsize. Rations were taken over the camp, at the skipper's risk, however. Wednesday the 7th of March 1860. Taking it upstream to where the water was calmer, although much deeper, Mr. Macrossan succeeded in crossing over safely and Mr. Mackay swam behind the boat. Thursday March 8, 1860. A very wet day. The water in the creek no sooner down that it is up again. 
no hope of getting the cattle over without swimming so Bell and I took him up the creek about a mile above the head station and drove them into the stream. They all swam over safely and the horses were put in with all our clothes and my boots on my horse. They reached the far bank all right and I swam after them. Mr. Bell went back and managed to paddle over in the boat as he could not swim. The ridges on the opposite side were very stony, a slate formation. I could not catch my horse and Sue, hash d7, erd walking over the stones barefooted. Was glad to see Bell with one of my mates, coming to my assistance. I got my horse and boots and we rounded up the cattle on a ridge, bounded on one side by a vine scrub. Camped. Friday March 9, 1860. Started early and got to Cabbage Tree Creek which we had to swim the horses and cattle over and carried our saddles and traps over on a log. The camp party my mates also moved on today from Jinjin and camped at Cabbage Tree. We took the cattle onto a stockyard used for mustering. Country improving much. Saturday March 10, 1860. Went on and reached Cullia, Mr. Holt's place, where we got a good yard to camp the cattle in and a black boy to herd them, he lost one or two. Here, also, a bet was decided in my favor and I got a sovereign from Mr. John Mackay who bet me a pound at camp on 22nd of February that the spinal marrow in a bullock's backbone went under not through the backbone. A bullock having been killed and the matter proved in the cutting down, my bet was easily proved and I got my sovereign with not very good grace from Mr. Mackay. It was however fairly won. Sunday March 11, 1860. River bound again. A river a few miles ahead of the Chokoya station called the Colon, was not crossable, so we camped in good quarters in a large shed of Mr. Holt's. Mr. Bell stayed at the house. Monday March 12, 1860. Camped all day. A detachment of native police commanded by a Mr. Bly came up from Stowe. The black boys were expert swordsmen and practiced with some cutlasses we had. Tuesday, March 13, 1860. Still wet, creeks flooded so we remained at Cullia till the evening of the 16th. Old routine, quiet all the time. Saturday, March 17, 1860. Started, past Waroya, Mr. Clark's station. He lived at Clarkness, on the Bundara. The long continued rain and the unsuitable country for sheep was death to them. The condition of the sheep was poor and the yoke on them had changed to a red mould, on their backs. The Colon River was crossable. Camped at Mr. Blackman's station. All this country is of poor description, slate, rock, spotted gum and iron bark. The creek here is called Baffle Creek. A Mr. and Mrs. Buchan was staying here. They had been neighbours on the New England and had stayed at Hanning often. Mr. Buchanan was trying to nurse a few sheep, a hopeless task, as the red mould was on their backs from excessive wet. Sunday, March 18, 1860. Went on to Mount Colseen Creek and camped. Grass is high and the country softer. Mosquitoes troublesome. Monday, March 19, 1860. Had a good start. Made on the Mr. Blomfield station, Merrinvale. Many squatter pigeons over all this country.
got a good yard and Mr. Bloomfield was very kind to us and told us stories of adventures after the blacks. Tuesday, March 20, 1860. A good start, the country is poor and boggy. One heifer took a staggering fit and fell down. I split her ear and after bleeding a bit, she got up and went on all right. Bell said I was a good vet and he would not have thought of that treatment. Much tea tree growing all over this country. High mountains ahead and a big patch of black vine scrub. My party ahead now. We were making for a gap between the hills. Camped near a swamp. Mosquitoes in myriads worried us all night. I had a rug with a hole in the center to put my head through but it was useless. Wednesday, March 21, 1860. Set out as early as we could, trying to make Riverston by midday. Mr. James Bell, my old mate on the MacDonald, came along to meet us. Kind-hearted, thoughtful, industrious Mrs. Bell, had baked us a pillow slip of nice biscuits. The Boyne River was deep, the biscuits were wet and in a mush. Poor Jim was sorry and so were we. We got the cattle down and crossed the Boyne all right. Got a yard at Riverston to put them in. Mr. Pollington was here and I think, Messrs. Dixon and Williams. Thursday, March 22, 1860. Got a good start, country improving much. Took cattle on to stow and left them above Brennan's hut. Heavy rainstorm. Jim stayed with the cattle and John Bell and I went on to Stowe, where long lost sight of friends, welcomed us. Mr. R. Bell was one of the best managers and most industrious of all the pioneer laddies who had ever crossed from the New England to the North. All at home now, Mr. Robert Bell would have me bring all my dirty jean pants to be washed. I did not think it was fair. My arm was quite equal to washing my dirty clothes. Mr. Bell insisted on my bringing him down and I did, and have always thought it an imposition. They were all nicely washed and that old sort of kindness. Will never be repaid by me in this world, I fear. Pulled out party up and camped. Mr. Macrossan, Cameron, Robertson and Mackay went into Gladstone. Friday, March 23, 1860 got togged out in a new suit of clothes and off Bell and I went to Gladstone. Mr. Macrossan, Cameron, Robertson and Mackay, who turned back with us to town, saw the ocean for the first time. John Bell, who was with me, got a boat and rowed me out to a waterlogged vessel called the Marina. The harbour was bit choppy, but we got over all right. Two men and a boy off some wrecked ship up N.W. of the Barrier Reef had found this vessel, timber-laden, drifting about and had steered her into Gladstone Harbour. They were Sue, hash D7, erring from scurvy and had had great hardship and starvation, had been dipping their biscuits in a cask of slush tallow, it smelt bad. Went back and stayed at Richard Hetherington's hotel. Had a few songs, Hetherington sang one called Bannocks in the Strathbogie. Saturday, March 24, 1860. Returned to Stowe where we stayed for some time. I went about with Jim Bell. Sunday, March 25, 1860. Jim and I went down towards Calliope. He was showing me where he would like his cattle camp.
Mr. and Mrs. Robert Bell passed us on their way to see Mr. and Mrs. Clark on Calliope Station. We camped here till the 27th and were kindly treated the whole time. Wednesday, March 28, 1860. John Bell lent me a brown, dock-tailed cob and we also got a loan of a carbine. We went on and passed the Calliope, passed Mr. Clark's station and went on to Mr. Young's station, Mount Larkham. There were a great many blacks camped here. They had killed several people on this station and Mr. Young had got into trouble in Gladstone for shooting one of them. We began practicing at a tree when the whole camp of blacks cleared off the place. We saw no more of them. There were three or four graves on the ridge above the house. Thursday, March 29, 1860. Had a good start this morning. The country from Riverston to here is in most places, fit for sheep. East Stowe and Mount Larkham are stocked chi, hash d3, y with sheep. The ridges are undulating. Passing west we passed Mr. Lansborough's station, Raglan Creek, crossed that creek and travelled over back country, affected at times, by the high tides. Camped near the seven-mile scrub. Some thunder with rain at this camp. Mosquitoes troublesome. Friday, March 30, 1860. Went on through the scrub. A track wide enough for a team had been cut through it. Saw a blackfellow's skull by the roadside. On emerging from the scrub on the west side, Duke noticed what proved to be a large brown snake in a log with some cracks in it. Robertson killed it, length about seven feet. Continued on a few miles passing Mr. Archer's cattle station. The country is level here. We camped about ten miles from Rockhampton. Saturday, March 31, 1860. Grass being abundant, little time was lost bringing the horses up. We went and reached Rockhampton early in the afternoon. Camped at a small gully about half a mile from the town, the galvanized roofs, which looked in the distance like a collection of tents. It was only about two years formed. Mr. Archer of Gracemere was shifting his wool from it and a rush of gold in 1858, known as the Canoona Rush, a disastrous one to the diggers, gave Rockhampton its start. Sunday, April 1, 1860. Camped all day as usual on Sunday. Remained here, getting all kinds of necessaries for our journey. Here we fell in with a Mr. Dalrymple who had been out to Mount McConnell in search of country for a syndicate. He also pointed out the approximate pencil lines on a map of Lycards where the boundaries of the country where he claimed, in order that we would not clash with his application. Monday, April 16, 1860. On leaving Rockhampton, or rather, trying to do so today, our supplies consisted of 800 pounds of flour, 300 pounds of beef, 20 pounds of tea, 10 pounds of coffee, 140 pounds sugar, one doz tins of groats, with a bottle or two of brandy. Each man carried 200 bullets, eight boxes of shot and three boxes of caps, two pocket compasses and a chart of Lycards as stated previously. Had my bags made to carry 50 pounds of flour each with a thin strip of bark under the straps to prevent the bags from char, hash D2, NG through, gunpowder in half a pound flasks, 
flat bottleneck tins which I sewed in a piece of double bagging as in this way the tins could not chafe and could not slip out. Meat was as hard as wood, more dye, hash D5, cult to put in nice form for safe packing. As for groats and brandy, I had none of these to carry. Packing up and putting, for the first time, full weight on the horses did not seem approved of by some of them, as we were not out of sight of camp and Mr. Macrossan's black horse began a performance that resulted in his receiving a bad cut on the knee from an American axe, which in falling from his pack struck him on the knee. After collecting the scattered odds and ends and packing up again we went on a short distance and camped near Jardines, on the banks of the Fitzroy. Giovanna Barbara, alias Chips, also got a spill, injuring his wrist and arm. Poor chap, the workshop was more in his line than riding of which he was nervous and frightened. Did two miles. Tuesday, April 17, 1860. Mr. Macrossan and Mr. Mackay went back to town to get an additional pack saddle and a wee drop of fro then, of which they were a bit fond. Some little disagreement having occurred, the true nature of which I do not know, this was previous to our reaching Rockhampton, between Mr. Mackay and Mr. Cameron. He, Mr. Cameron and Muldoon and I partly arranged to go out on a trip by ourselves and with that end in view we had a tent made. After thinking the matter over, Cameron and Muldoon thought we would be too weak to meet wild blacks, but I did not, fearing nothing with a good supply of rations and a good natural idea of the lay of the country, we had little to fear. However, to end the matter Mr. Donald Cameron, who would not join the old party again, left us on Thursday the 12th and went in the direction of Presto, so my most reliable old mate was gone, for which I was sorry. I could not however persuade him to join the party again. Wednesday, April 18, 1860. Got a good start and all went well. We had no trouble today. Camped near a lagoon on the roadside. The country is fairly level her, evidently very wet during heavy rainfalls. Timber, mostly red gum. Thursday, April 19, 1860. Started early hoping to reach Yamba in good time. We got along all right for a short distance, coming on to small plains. By some means, Mr. Macrossan's Bay Cobb pack pony got loose a part of a tent strapped on his back at which he took fright and away he went. The further he galloped and the more he kicked, the further the tent came out, until it was flying full length, only hooked to the pack saddle. The die, Hash D5, culti is to prevent these frightened animals from racing through and starting the rest of the pack horses. After going around on the plane, he came back and started another, Muldoon's piebald, oh, Shauna C, went off. His pack was flour, a hole was torn in the bag and quite a cloud of flour followed that animal meteor like in his swift course, until tired of the game, the truants were caught and their packs fixed up again. After that bit of diversion and loss of time tracking around for straps etc. We went on to a small creek where we camped. Our stages so far have been very short since leaving Rockhampton. Friday, April 20, 1860. B. Eing, by information received, about 10 miles from Yamba, the crossing place of the Fitzroy, 
we pushed on this morning, reaching it in good time. As expected it was uncrossable, so after a time we got a Mr. Pitts, who had a good boat and who keeps an inn near the opposite bank, to come down and arrangements were made to carry our luggage over. We paid him one, for £112 for our rations and saddles and one, each for ourselves at so much per hundredweight. And we swam our horses safely over. It was late evening before we got all carried up the opposite bank, which was high and steep. Several articles that had been left by the unfortunate Gold Rush Canora crowd of 1858 were still lying about on the bank, an ironstone and other odds and ends. Our tent pitched for the night and out kit all put away. Muldoon, who was anxious to learn to swim and who had bought a swimming belt in Rockhampton, went down and dabbled in the river. Still late, a very dangerous thing to do as there were many crocodiles or alligators in the river and may have seen sharks as the river is navigatable for small boats up to this point. I caught a large catfish. Saturday, April 21, 1860. Rained off and on most of the day. Mr. Macrossan's horse had his knee injured at Rockhampton by a cut from an axe that fell from his pack, being lame. We camped here a few days. Pigeons were plentiful and I and others shot many of them. Were what is known as squatters pigeons from their habit of squatting down close to the ground before flying when disturbed. Their flesh is very fine, and white, whilst washing some of them as I sat in a boat, I felt fish nibbling at them and thought to get a fish by holding onto a pigeon till a fish bit at it. The fish was too many for me and snapped one of them out of my hand, which I lost, so I used a hook after that. A party of new chums were camped about fifty yards from us. One a Mr. Connors, an Irish man who had a kangaroo dog, carried up a kangaroo, down the flats of medium size, came back, pulling it by the tail. As one of the seven wonders, his loud exclamations caused much merriment to us, he called out, what are you say, laughing at. As he was of tall stature and of a peculiar build, his legs being out of all proportion, long to his body, we deemed it well to suppress our merriment. Muldoon, a few days after, was taken ill with fever and ague and returned to Rockhampton, so I volunteered to take his pack horse on and mark out his country for him. When he recovered he went into a butchery for a time, after which he bought into a station with a Mr. Mackenzie at Glenroy. He was drowned in crossing the Dawson, many years after, by the upsetting of a boat. Sunday, April 22, 1860. Remained in camp all day. Weather fine. Monday, April 23, 1860. Horse still lame so remained in camp. Caught several catfish. I got the loan of Leichard's Journal of Exploration from Mr. Pitt and copied such parts from it as I thought might be of use to us. Tuesday, April 24, 1860. Mr. Macrossan's black horse, having recovered Sue, hash D5, seantly to travel short stages, we started and having passed Canuna Head Station we camped on the south side of a small creek, Canuna Creek. The country is now more ridgy, rock formation and slate, timber ironbark. Thursday, April 26, 1860. 
on going to rouse Muldoon this morning, who occupies the new tent that Cameron, he and I made, he said he was ill. On looking into the tent, I noticed that a heavy dew had apparently fallen on his blankets, being inside a good tent I could not at first understand it. On going inside there was a smell of a peculiar odor. The dew-like appearance on his blanket was caused by a steaming perspiration, the result of fever heat of his body. It was the dreaded fever and ague. He was ill and despondent, all energy gone. He could go no further, so I took charge of his pack horse, which gave me six horses to attend to now. I told him I would draw for him and mark his blocks of land for him, if we found any country, meanwhile, he could go back to Rockhampton, which he did. Friday, April 27, 1860. The last of my mates gone now. Went on over Slate Ridges, passing Mr. Radford's station, Princhester. The country here changes to basalt, the ridges run up to mountains. Followed up Princhester Creek or one of its tributaries to camp. Fine. 